This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Spencer Brudig. I'm Will Johnson. This show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. The crazy thing about this story is that there are so many just twists and turns. You have, obviously, the the killer here was someone who lived this double life. His neighbors were shocked to learn that he was capable of something like this. This is Michael Wooten. He's an anchor and managing editor for WGRZ in New York. You have very bad police work early on for a number of years that allowed this to continue. And then you had excellent police work that finally brought this case to a close. Um, you have a, an innocent man who served 22 years in prison for crimes he didn't commit. Uh, there were just so many bizarre twists and turns that happened over the years before this case was finally concluded. This week's case takes place in Buffalo, New York, over a span of 30 years, involving dozens of known victims and probably many more. The bike path rapists terrorize an entire city. And although this story likely begins in the late 1970s, this episode begins with a young woman running on a well-traveled community path. It's September 29th, 1990. It's a sunny day, and 22-year-old University of Buffalo student Linda Yalom decides to head out of her dormitory to go run the scenic 5.5-mile Ellicott Creek Path. She's getting in shape to run the New York City Marathon in a little over a month. She laces up her white New Balance sneakers and jogs out of her dorm room, running to the beat of the Tears for Fears cassette she has in her Walkman. But sometime on this run, she's attacked and is never seen alive again. When Linda doesn't show back up at her dorm, her roommates call police, who are dispatched to search for her along the trail. Investigators immediately worry that he has struck again. Four months earlier, a woman had been strangled to unconsciousness and sexually assaulted along the same path. A year before that, a 14-year-old high school student on her way to cheer practice was raped. It was the latest of a deeply disturbing series of attacks going back over a decade that investigators often linked together but had no lead on who was behind them. When police locate Linda, she had been dragged off the path, assaulted, and strangled to death. They notice a couple key pieces of visual evidence that solidify that this attack has indeed been perpetrated by the same person as previous attacks. Crisscross masking tape covering her mouth and deeply bruised double ligature marks on her neck. In the past, he had used this strangulation tool to render his victims unconscious. For some reason today, he decided to use it to kill Linda Yalom. The bike path rapist had just evolved into the bike path murderer. The second victim was May Jane Mazur. This was a couple of years after the first murder, so 1992. Uh, May Jane Mazur had suffered from addiction. Uh, she had resorted to prostitution. Um, she was actually found dead, strangled, like the other victims uh, in the city of Buffalo, not along a bike path. So there was a little bit of a difference there. It was near a railroad track um, along a city street. Ma Jane was 29. She too was found with crisscross duct tape over her mouth and double ligature marks on her neck. Police collect DNA evidence at both of the murder scenes, but no leads are returned from it. The sexual assaults continue for a couple more years until in 1994, they suddenly stop. The police, local media, and the community alike begin to think that maybe the perpetrator behind these brutal assaults and murders was arrested for something else or was killed himself. Or maybe he felt the compulsion stop. Or maybe 
he was just biding his time. There would be no answer to this until 12 years later, when Joan Diver was killed in September of 2006. Joan Diver loved to run. It was something that she had done her whole life. She was 45 years old, had four kids, and had just dropped one of them off at preschool uh, in 2006 when she went running like she did often. Uh, It was described to me as a sunny, beautiful Friday in September. Uh, She had, as I said, dropped her youngest off at daycare. Uh, She thought she was just gonna go for a quick jog along the Clarence bike path and ended up being the final victim of Altimio Sanchez. Buffalo Police, 911. I called before about my wife being in the bike path, and she is somehow out there. Oh, she hasn't returned? She hasn't returned, but but she's probably injured. And I saw her vehicle at the bike path, and we're going to drive out on the bike path and find her because she's out there. Authorities searched by air, on foot, and by car. They brought in search dogs, but nothing. The next day, they called off the search, telling her husband she may have just run off. I think some anger at, at authorities that that they stopped. It was, I think, too soon. So volunteers from the local Boy Scout troop and community members formed their own search party on that Sunday. Hours later, they found her body. Joan would be the killer's final victim, but for many in the community, all of the fear of this violent specter had returned. The bike path rapist was back. With the killer active again, a new generation of law enforcement put together a specialized task force to finally uncover his identity and bring him to justice. Investigators had DNA from all three of the murders, but it wasn't until 2006 and the murder of Joan Diver that they put together this task force of state and local police along with help from the FBI. The really interesting thing about this case is it was excellent police work that finally brought it to a conclusion. But looking back, there were a lot of missteps by local police departments in the 1980s especially. Before the murders took place, Investigators pinned several of the sexual assaults on a man named Anthony Capozzi. Anthony Capozzi was tried and convicted of two rapes and spent 22 years in prison, um, even though he didn't commit those crimes. Um, Anthony Capozzi suffered from mental illness. Now that he's out of prison, he still lives in a group home. He suffered from schizophrenia. And he matched the description uh, of what the two victims had told police as to what their attacker looked like. And so that was part of the reason why Capozzi um, was sent to prison. But some things just didn't add up. Several survivors said that the man who attacked them was 150 to 160 pounds. Anthony Capozzi was around 220 pounds at the time and had a very distinguishing three-inch scar above his eye, something that no one mentioned. Even without solid evidence, for the time being, police had their man. But even after he was convicted of two of the bike path assaults and sentenced to 11 to 35 years in prison, the attacks continued. One of the first things the newly created task force does is to review all of the evidence collected at the crime scenes. And with the help of the FBI, they build out a profile of key traits they think the killer may have. Eventually, police did DNA analysis and learned that the suspect here was of Hispanic ethnicity. And so that narrowed it down a little bit. They had some uh, visual descriptions of him from past victims. And, but it it wasn't that that they had a specific, you know, um, 
description of him. And, that, and that's why, you know, one man, you know, spent, again, 22 years in prison for rapes that he didn't commit. Police were able, with the help of the FBI, to eventually come up with a profile of what they thought the killer was. And that profile ended up being pretty spot on, someone who had uh, solicited prostitutes in the past. So that, so that, that definitely made a big difference in, in cracking the case. With this new DNA evidence-based profile, a name they kept coming to was a well-known community member named Altemio Sanchez. Sanchez's name had made some lists that police had kept uh, over the decades as they were searching for the bike path rapist, but it wasn't really until after the murder of Joan Diver in 2006 that they really started to look at him for a few different reasons. He was of Hispanic descent, and that kind of flagged it. Uh, investigators with state police and with local police were able to look through kind of the, the list of possible suspects, even those who had been cleared in the past, uh, and, and see which ones were Hispanic, and then kind of look and see what had fallen through the cracks over the years in terms of what turned out to be some pretty shoddy police work. Intent on quickly solving this case, the new team of investigators leave no stone unturned, and they turn their attention to a report that was made decades earlier. In 1981, one of the rape victims said that she saw her attacker at the mall, and they actually followed him and wrote down the license plate number that was on the car that he got into. Police went to the owner of that car. Uh, his name was Wilfredo Carabello, and he had an alibi. Uh, and he said his 1975 Oldsmobile had been parked in his garage and that it hadn't left his home. And police took his word for it. They did some investigating, but they closed that part of the case. It wasn't until 25 years later that this task force of state police investigators, local police, with the help of the FBI, went back through that case and went back to Wilfredo Carabello, who at that time admitted actually his nephew had borrowed the car that day, his nephew, Altimio Sanchez. By this time, police are confident that Altimio Sanchez is the bike path rapist, but they need his DNA to match samples found at eight of the crime scenes. So they set up a clandestine operation to confirm his identity. He and his wife were going to dinner one Saturday night. And so detectives watched him from a distance. And when Altimio Sanchez got up from the table, detectives got the glass, the napkin, and the silverware that he had been using at his table. And DNA analysis would prove to be a match. With the case built out against Sanchez, investigators began asking him why he committed these crimes. But before that can be answered, we first have to answer the question of who is Altimio Sanchez? Altimio Sanchez was such a strange dichotomy, known on one side by his family and his friends as a church-going man, a Little League baseball coach, a machinist at a local plant. But he had this incredibly dark side and ended up murdering three women and raping upwards of 20 or maybe more women. So the reaction from people who knew him best was shock. And investigators have said they don't believe his wife knew that he was a murderer and a rapist. They don't believe his sons knew that dark side of him. He lived a double life, for sure. At first, Sanchez was defiant with investigators. He didn't think they had anything on him. The detective who, who had interrogated him 
told us that at first he said, you've got nothing on me. And he constantly just kind of pushed back. He wouldn't admit to anything, even though detectives were telling him, we have your DNA. We know that you did this. But after investigators present some of the evidence they have against him, Sanchez's position changes. It was a surprise to a lot of people in Western New York, even to many people in law enforcement, when Altimio Sanchez decided to plead guilty. He admitted eventually to 12 rapes and three murders. And it was surprising to Western New York, surprising to a lot of the investigators even, when he pleaded guilty to those three murders. Although the evidence and his testimony link him to a dozen sexual assaults, prosecutors are not able to charge him for those crimes. In New York State at the time, there was a five-year period in which you could file charges for rape, and that had long passed for all of those cases. So while he admitted to a dozen rapes, possibly more, uh, they weren't able to actually get convictions on those charges. But the three murders he pleaded guilty to. I did these crimes, and I should pay for these crimes. To Mr. Diver and the Allen family, I apologize. When he pleaded guilty, Altimio Sanchez sobbed in court. He apologized while acknowledging that his words wouldn't help the victims. Law enforcement said it was all a show. They think Altimio Sanchez has no remorse. But he did admit to a lot of the crimes for which he was suspected. And he explained he took this pause uh, for a number of years before committing that final murder because he said he got nervous. He felt like police had latched onto him, and so he backed off. But he said it was that he had this constant urge to be dominant over women, and that was, in large measure, the impetus for his attacks. And the ones that he murdered, um, the way I understand it, it wasn't that he was sparing the life of any of these victims. It was that some of them escalated to the point of murder. Others, he left for dead, and somehow they survived their attack. After a brief trial, the judge delivers his verdict. He got 75 years to life in prison. That was the maximum that the judge could sentence him to. It was 25 to life for each of the murders laid out consecutively. And so, Altimio Sanchez will die in prison. Many of the victims' families will never fully know what happened to their loved ones until Altimio Sanchez confesses to all of his crimes. Altimio Sanchez's wife divorced him after he was sent off to prison. Many of his family members, for obvious reasons, have nothing to do with him. But there are still a couple of people in his life. There is this desire on behalf of of his friends and people who keep in touch with him for Altimio Sanchez to come fully clean with all of the women that he raped and all of the women that he murdered. And I've been told by his associates that there are victims that the public doesn't know about. And there was a time when Altimio Sanchez was right on the verge of agreeing to do a jailhouse interview where he said he would reveal everything. And he backed out. And he's done that a number of times over the years. The only way Altimio Sanchez comes fully clean about what he's done is if those people who still keep in touch with him demand it. If they say, Altimio, we are leaving your life unless you come fully clean, I think that's the only way that we will actually get full closure to all of the murders and all of the rapes committed by Altimio Sanchez. And the man who was wrongly accused and convicted, Anthony Capozzi, 
was finally vindicated. After spending 22 years in prison, Anthony Capozzi was released with the apologies of prosecutors and police in the state of New York. Uh, he did sue and got more than $4 million, but uh, he was able to get out of prison um, before his parents passed away, and it was something that they had worked so hard to see happen. They had maintained his innocence all along, and after more than two decades, he finally saw freedom. Anthony, yeah. you're finally coming home, honey. I'm so happy that finally we got a, an answer to our prayers. Did you ever think this day would come? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This lady right here did that. She prayed and prayed and prayed, and that's what did it. So, Spencer, the fact that this story has, I mean, it's its incredible, really. I don't know if we've covered a story that, that had such a, a long period of time involved in terms of how long something was going on. But you've got Anthony Capozzi, who is behind bars for 22 years and gets out. And, I mean, yeah, he files a lawsuit. He, he made some money, but that's 22 years of his life. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a devastating story because you have a lot of victims that, you know, do gain quote unquote justice because they do find the actual killer. Uh, but there are so many other victims and their families that are still, it's still totally unknown if he had anything to do with them. And then you have this guy that is brought into this mess because of his mental illness and some shoddy police work as it was described. And, uh, just a lot of victims in this case. And it is great that Anthony Capozzi was able to get out, uh, but, you know, it took them actually finding the killer, and then they said, well, maybe he didn't actually do this. But to stick with Capozzi, it sounds like he was convicted on, I mean, I, I know you told the story, a, a long, again, a long period of time, boiled down to, you know, one episode of our show, but uh, it was based on a few witnesses who said that's the guy, but then he had this scar and no one reported having a scar. I mean, it just sounded, I, I'm surprised, I don't know if I'm surprised, I mean, he, he clearly was convicted in a court of law. Yeah, and it doesn't really seem like there was really any physical evidence or DNA that attached him to these sexual assaults. Uh, he didn't even fit the correct description. Uh, they they kind of said, oh, it's either a, a, a white guy or a Hispanic guy that is 150, 160 pounds. And Capozzi was 220 pounds, a lot bigger frame. He had this very distinctive three-inch scar. So I guess, you know, he someone could have covered their face, but it, it doesn't really make sense why police chose him as their guy. Now, the one thing that I do know that they used a lot in kind of ramping up in trying him was he had bizarre behavior, but he suffers from mental illness. So his family was trying to explain, hey, this guy, um, you know, he, he doesn't operate in, in a traditional fashion and he is a different type of person and police kind of, kind of crucified him for it. And then, I mean, another big element of this story is that you've got Sanchez who is eventually identified, convicted, you know, no doubt about it. He's the guy, at least for the ones that we, you know, that he is admitted to, um, for certain, but you've got this whole double life story going on well, where he's married, he has kids, and he's doing these horrific, heinous things over, again, many, many years. 
Yeah, and, and there's even some suggestion that he started in his early to mid teenage years, that there are some connections to, you know, the mid seventies. Uh, they definitely know that he, he started in the late seventies, early eighties because of some of his, um, admissions of guilt. But yeah, I mean, he, he did this over the course of almost 30 years, if not more. And I think the interesting thing is that transition from that evolution from, sexual assault to murder. And he said that once he started murdering, it wasn't like, oh, I, you know, I wanted to spare these people's life or I wanted to kill these people. It was all just from the power differential uh, in that moment, whether he chose to kill them or not. And we don't really know uh, his total murder count because he has not admitted to other murders. He has admitted to other sexual assaults. And then there's also this 12-year break that you talk about that he takes, you know, and I think in a lot of stories that you hear, a lot of cases where there's a killer or somebody doing awful things, uh, that period of time that may or may not exist is always one that I think is interesting to people who investigate this stuff, who try to understand the psychology or the psychopathy of a killer, um, and you've got a 12-year break here. It would be interesting to know what was going on in his life at that time. Were his children coming of age? Was he just having children? Did he recently get married? I'm not totally sure of that timeline, but you know what caused him to stop? He says that he felt like there was too much heat on him and that if he continued, the police were going to get him. And obviously that, that does seem to be the case because as soon as he came back in 2006, the FBI and local law enforcement and that kind of new generation of law enforcement said, this is it. We're not allowing this guy to come back. And they put a ton of resources into finding him and they found him pretty quickly. Unfortunately for Joan Diver, you know, she was killed and was his last victim and they weren't able to stop him before that. But it was that final victim that uh, caused such a stir that he was caught because of it. And then finally, I don't mean to sound naive or sort of like gee whiz, but you know, we've gotten used to DNA solving crimes, but I'm always kind of blown away by the fact that there are, you know, no matter what was going on with this investigation early on and if there were mistakes that were made, along the way they kept some DNA. And I'm just always amazed in these cases that, you know, let's put this aside for technology that doesn't exist yet, you know, when you, when you think about it, like decades ago. And then today, lo and behold, yeah, we're getting answers. We're getting people arrested and convicted and sent to jail. Yeah, it does seem like from, you know, many interviews we've done over the show, over the series of the show, that um, that it a lot of these cold cases can be solved if police had the understanding of taking care of the evidence that was collected at these crime scenes. So even back in the 60s and 70s, if that evidence was properly preserved and not contaminated, and then on top of it, you also had elements like evidence is moved, or if it's in the hot sun, or if there's not climate control that can degrade DNA and evidence. But if they are able to maintain quality evidence, we are now seeing the kind of birth of new technology to where those cold cases have the possibility of being solved like never before. All right, uh, Spencer, great work this week on bringing us this story. I know you're working on one for next week as well. Don't give away too much, but uh, it has to do with a, a woman who vanishes. Yeah, really interesting case. Uh, a woman vanishes without a trace. Her child is tied to an ice machine, and there is quite the twist in this upcoming story for next week. All right, we'll be back next week with a new case and a new story for True Crime Chronicles. I'm Will Johnson, along with Spencer Burdick.